At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. And I started to tell a little bit about the details. My father was actually taking um, a sofa cushion and put it on top of the telephone. <laughs> he was not a, um, a person who was afraid of, of that many things. And he was just saying, just to be sure. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com. Stefan was born in Karl Markstadt and was conscripted into the NVA, the East German Army, in 1988. When he left school, he started an apprenticeship for electronics, learning how to build radio receivers at Rima, a then famous producer of hi-fi equipment. Stefan is called up at 18 for his 18-month service, and he talks of the conscription process and the incentives offered to him to serve for a longer period. He is posted to a unit in Leipzig, which was responsible for telephone lines from the NVA headquarters for the area south of Berlin. He describes the training he took and the role he carried out, including installing phones for NATO Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty Inspectors. In the summer of 1989, many citizens of East Germany flee the country via the now semi-open Hungarian border, and Stefan describes heightened tension within the army. Don't miss next week's episode where Stefan continues his story as the country falls apart and the Berlin Wall opens. The battle to preserve Cold War history is ongoing and your support can provide me with the ammunition to continue to keep this podcast on the air. Via a simple monthly donation, you'll become one of our community and get a sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Hi, this is Tree from Berlin. I believe it's so important and interesting to hear these stories from that period, good and bad. Books will tell you so much, but the real-life stories from people who were there make it so real. If a monthly contribution is not your cup of tea, we also welcome one-off donations via coldwarconversations.com slash donate. I'm delighted to welcome Stefan to our Cold War Conversation. I was born in 1970 in uh, karl marx which is now called Chemnitz, but uh, during the years it was Karl-Marxstadt after the famous philosopher. And um, yeah, I grew up having a probably typical East German childhood. Um, you know, uh, I was the only child of my two parents and uh, 
they were doing regular jobs. So nothing fancy there. It's just you and your parents in the family, yeah? Exactly, yeah. What job did they have in uh, East Germany? So my father is uh, a mathematician or, um, yeah, he worked in in some, I think, some institute not too closely affiliated with the state. And um, my mom was actually also in a production company. Uh, She did... um, some secretary services and uh, some some calculations in the, on the energy sector stuff like that regular office jobs neither of them were were members of the party per se uh, no they were not so um my parents uh, actually also including me um they were not like you know in uh, resistant or so right uh, they were also not in the party it was more like i think with most of the people in, in the gdr just trying to get by and um, my mom actually had a uh, her own little history of um, not being allowed to study uh, because she um, she did uh, she did not do the Jugendweihe, uh, which is the uh, the thing that you do with the I think it com- comes out of a communist tradition tradition uh, where instead of the church thing that you do with fourteen uh, they had some alternative thing governed by the state and because um, she didn't want to do that she didn't want to do the Jugendweihe she was not allowed to study and that sort of maybe raised her resistance a little bit but you know not like in an uh, in a real way that she was doing forbidden things or so it was more like on a private level and um, similar from for my dad they, they were sort of neutral and trying to get get around in life from my interviews that I've done is that people are sort of expecting the Stasi at every corner and, you know, the ever oppressive state, but the vast majority of people were just getting on with their life as they could in the same way that people were in, in the West and just sort of accepted the way things were. Sort of, right? I mean, that's, um, I think, Probably one of the most frequent discussions when you get even uh, nowadays that people still discuss. Um, on one hand, it was sort of clear that there was always the possibility that somebody you're talking to might be with the Stasi or might be, you know, giving reports to the Stasi as an uh, unofficial member. On the other hand, you just, you know, you were we were friends with people and you just couldn't think of them doing something like that. And as many many people saw after the wall came down, that was actually more frequent than we thought at GDR times. Uh, that was um, that was pretty, su- pretty surprising for me. Thankfully, I didn't have such thing. I, I did look up my Stasi files and I did not see anything that, you know, anybody did something, said something bad about me or so. It was very, very thin. Um, but yeah, I, I know many other people who had bad surprises. Did your family have any relations in the West at all or not? Yes, actually, they they did not not very close. But I think the closest one was an aunt my my mother had, and actually, she was able to visit her when uh, her aunt uh, turned eighty, I believe, in in eighty seven. Um, also, from my father's side, we had some relatives, uh, maybe not too close, and my parents actually also uh, always made a point about. Uh, not hiding that, right? So it was kind of a protection for not being asked to join the join the party or getting into jobs that um, you know were too close to the state. Uh, they, they always told me, you know, never hide that and make sure you mention that all the time, so they cannot say you you hid it and you did bad things. And what what was your uh, school life like, Stefan? Um, so I I did the regular ten years of you know. Um, 
school education that that uh, everybody had like a secondary school. And um, until I turned maybe 15 or so, I had no intention to do um, grammar school or A-levels. And I wanted to basically get an apprenticeship and, uh, you know, get uh, what I thought at this at this point, a real job. <laughs> and uh, I remember telling my parents, you know, I don't want to end up in a lab being in one of these white coats and doing theoretical things. I want to do some practical stuff. Yeah, but before that, school was um, sort of uneventful for me. I just got by and um, had some, you know, minor troubles, but nothing, nothing serious. Did you play uh, much sport or anything at school? Um, not too much. I, I was into bicycling uh, a little bit and um, also um, a lot of electronics, which, you know, uh, I later um, um, had my ap- apprenticeship in and also studied later on. But um, that was more or less uh, not involved with school. Uh, there were central places um, called um, Pioneer House or uh, again, organized by the state where you could get together and, uh, you know, um, do something about your hobby. Uh, I think I was there for maybe a year or two, but mostly it was it was not for me. I, I was more happy with doing this by myself and with a friend. Were, were there, was there any military training at your school? Yes, there was actually. So I think in the age of 14, most... Uh, Male uh, children had to go to, um, I think, for a week or so to this like pre-training, and um, where they already tried to convince you to do more than more than the usual eighteen months of military service. That that was, by the way, that was a topic all the time, right? Through your whole childhood in the GDR, it was always about joining the army and you know going for more than the eighteen months, and um, and I. I basically resisted that all the time because, you know, I, I couldn't see myself. I couldn't see myself shooting other people. That was not the biggest thing, but at least, you know, part of the story for me. Also, physical activities. I mean, I did them, but I did not particularly enjoy them. And uh, military was always about physical stuff all the time. So I just couldn't see myself there. I had a pretty clear vision of what I wanted to do in life. And military service just was a necessary evil that I had to do at one point. So actually in school, I managed to not having to do that. We were just too many boys in, in our class. So there was not enough space uh, in, in getting to this one week of military education. And three of us had to stay home. And uh, at the same in the same week, the girls had, uh, I think, some, some medical training, like, you know, uh, first aid and stuff like that. And we were just um, we were joining them, which was actually good fun. So it was useful to a useful skill to have, more useful than you know knowing how to shoot. So I enjoyed that. And uh, you mentioned uh, an apprenticeship. So where did you end up doing that, and what was the apprenticeship about? Yeah, so I was into electronics a lot uh, as a child, and uh, I wanted to do that as a you know as my regular job. So. Um, in with most people in GR, if you weren't doing your your A levels and study, uh, you would get an apprenticeship. That was, I don't know the percentage, but I think the vast majority was was going that route. So you you would have ten years of school education and then two or three years of uh, apprenticeship, and then you would just start your regular job life. And for me, there weren't too many companies around us uh, offering apprenticeships for what I wanted to do. 
and my uh, my marks in school were not that great. So I was between two and three all the time, and which was you know one the best and five the worst. And um, so I um, and th these these apprenticeships for electronics and you know radio mechanic and all that kind of stuff they were sought after a lot. So I did not see myself having high chances. So when uh, I was looking around, there were basically two places that were sort of indicating before that when I visited them together with my dad. They were saying, yeah, you know, we could see you here. There are others with better marks, but, you know, maybe it works out. So you had to put in uh, put in some papers. And um, so I, I applied actually at two places. And um, the second place, uh, which was my favorite, uh, was uh, Rema Stolberg. That's uh, uh, actually, I would say, in the GDR, pretty famous producer of radios, uh, radio receivers. And they didn't take me, right? They, 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 they said, we found somebody who has some, some worse marks than you, but uh, is willing to do 25 years of military service so we can fulfill our quota. And sorry, not for you. <laughs> so um, I was going back to that other place, and they were actually saying, you know... Um, you can you can get in right so i was in, in in that in that other place and funny enough they didn't do the education themselves so they sent me to that other place to rema stolberg <laughs> they had wide eyes when they saw me on on day 1 uh they before before that they said you know you can't come and then i was going in through that other company sending me over there for my apprenticeship so i ended up in the place where i wanted to go but with some with some detours so to say Raymar were making hi-fi equipment yes. as well, weren't they? True, yeah. So was it a very popular brand in East Germany for uh, electronics, radios, and hi-fi? Um, it's hard, uh, hard for me to say, like, you know, absolutely, because um, many products in the GDR, GDR were always rare, right? Not because of their quality, because, because everything was, maybe except cabbage, <laughs> everything was, was rare, right? <laughs> And, um, but, um, I, I think, you know, from learning a little bit about them and um, also from what I heard from other, from others, from friends or so, you know, do you get access to some of these radios? Can you buy one for me and such? The image, uh, these radios had, especially maybe in the, uh, sixties and seventies were very, very good. So people were, were liking them a lot. And, um, <laughs> I had this funny story as, as part of my apprenticeship, um, you had to basically rotate a couple of um, basically places for doing different things in that company. So one of part of that was, I think maybe six weeks or even two months of uh, being in the research and development department. And um, until that, I had seen other uh, parts of that company and doing some work on on the production line and other places. And there was this one radio everybody was speaking the highest of, you know, that this is like the best of what we can do. And uh, everybody was proud of that thing. And when I came to that research department, you know, you had your regular coffee conversations with people. And I was talking to two of the engineers over there. And uh, I was saying, you know, I'm so, uh, I'm so in love with this, with this particular radio and such a good thing. And the quality is so good. And they were just looking at me saying, that's a design of the Western company Grundig from 1972, right? So <laughs> that was that, that was 15 years old. That was the like the, the highest and the best that the GDR could produce, and that's 15 years after what uh, West Germany was was producing. So that was quite quite devastating for me at this time. 
So were they copying West German designs? That's hard to say for me. Uh, I have no de definitive information about this. I would suspect so because there was many, uh, you know, like transistors and chips and such were being copied. Um, at the same time, there was also um, quite some engineering going on that clearly was not copied and um, also basically general ingenuity of people. So um, maybe parts of that, but I can't really tell for sure. At what age do you get called up into the East German army? Between 18, which was like the earliest they could call you. And I think 25 was the, the latest they could call you. So there were very, very rare cases of people becoming 26 and not having been called before that. And you were basically free then. And um, yeah, actually, that, that was uh, one of the main fears I had when, when planning my, uh, my job then after, uh, after the apprenticeship. I was, I was thinking, uh, what do I do after you know, uh, exiting the apprenticeship and what would my life look like? And actually, during the apprenticeship, I developed uh, some more appreciation for what before that I called you know, being in the lab in a, in a white coat and I didn't want to do that. Actually, I, find, I found out that the, the more interesting jobs, at least more interesting to me, were actually those exclusively of people who went to study. So I developed that idea. Maybe that's that's for me. And then I found out that the GDR had this sort of, it was not a written down rule, but it, practically it was like that. Um, you were basically not allowed to study before actually serving the army. I think it was kind of an unwritten rule. So I was actually fearing, uh, while still being an, an apprentice, I was fearing, you know, it could be that I'm, I'm 25 and they would call me for 18 months. So when I'm exiting, I'm, I'm 27. And starting studies at 27 was like, that, that looked too late for me. I was unsure about that thing. And <laughs> I was offered, offered an escape then that, that I actually took. So what age were you when you uh, got your notice? I think shortly before my 18th birthday, and that, that was pretty normal. You would get this this call to um, where to go and such. And um, I was getting this this invitation to, uh, for muster uh, in somewhere in spring um, in in eighty eight, and that was around the time when I had had made up my mind that I that I actually want to want to study. There was this like commission of people. Uh, I sort of knew from other people how this is going to go. Right there's the, the medical part where they sort of inspect you and test you and all of that. And then there was the final part, which was like the final uh, attempt to convince you of, of doing more than your 18 months. What incentives did they give you to uh, convince you to do more than 18 months? Yeah, funny enough, that was the first time that somebody ever offered me something concrete. Until then, it had always been like, you know, you got to do it for the socialism and um, everybody, you know, who's who's going to, um, you know, value themselves, they do some something more. And, uh, you know, society paid for all your education and now you get to give, get to give something back. It was always about this, like, you know, glorious way of us together, we are... We were, put, uh, we were building the socialism and all of that. And there was never any discussion about, you know, any um, any advantages you would have or any, you know, perks you would get from from doing longer than that. And that was the first time 
when when I went in, and they, they didn't even ask, right? They they were just looking into their papers, saying, "Okay, we see you have this. Uh, you're close to getting, you're close to finalizing your apprenticeship. This is a, a sort after thing. Have you considered doing more than your 18 months?" And I said, "Yeah, you know, consider it, but it's not really for me. And I have plans. Uh, maybe that was, that was my mistake to say that I wanted to study." And that's when one of these um, people I can't remember, one of the three maybe or so, basically said like, "Oh, you want to study? So you know, how are you going to do that? Because you know, it could be a long time until um, you know you get to to serve the army and then you can study." And I was saying, "Yeah, not sure. That's a problem." And then they started offering me saying, okay, so maybe if you could consider doing uh, three years instead of 18 months, we could offer you, uh, I think it was basically three things. They offered me to call me right away in, in autumn. So in the same year, basically six months after um, after this, 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 these talks, uh, they offered me to place me somewhere relatively near my hometown, which was another th- problem for many of the conscripts. Uh, you could be, you could end up somewhere, you know, near um, near the Baltic Sea or in the middle of uh, Brandenburg or some some place where it takes you a long, long time to get home, where there's no no other life than than your barracks, and you know these eighteen months would be like a, a boring time at best, maybe even worse. And the third they offered me, which was actually the most uh, intriguing for me, the, they offered um, to put me into something where I could make use of my skills as an electronics worker, so to say. This is, this is the answer to all of my troubles, right? I would uh, get to do uh, these three, three years. Yeah, it's double the time, of course, but I would get to do them maybe in an easier way than 18 months in, in the middle of nowhere. I would get to continue doing what I enjoyed and that was electronics and not being too far away from home actually was also nice. So I actually, something that I, <laughs> I never did again, I decided on the spot on this day when, when they called me in that I want to do this and I actually signed and my parents were shocked, right? They were saying like, how could you do that? How could you do that? Like yesterday you were sure that, you know, it's 18 months and nothing else. And you had your plans and all of that. And and today you're coming back saying you're doing three years and, and, it was not like siding with the devil, but it's it was seriously something they they had they had their eyes wide open, you know, in disbelief. So <laughs> I remember that very well. But did they understand that you know you were seeing this as a learning opportunity and coming out with some better qualifications? Um, I think after discussing it and you know explaining them my reasoning and all of that, they they understood. But I also remember my my dad actually telling me something uh, that I, I obviously like you know did not forget because it was so it was so obvious that I thought you know why didn't I think of that? He was saying, okay, you signed some paper for doing three years. What paper did you get from them? Right, you you got you you got promises, like you know in 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 uh, in talking. Do you have anything in writing? And I thought, oh no, he's right. Right, they they just. Um, they fooled me. <laughs> I will end up somewhere totally different in some uh, totally totally different environment, and you know maybe as a tank commander or so. And and that was actually uh, uh, 
pretty pretty much horror for me to to think like you know, they fooled me and but actually to to uh, to take that look at in advance uh, all of that became true right i mean that that was that was not often that um people kept their promises like officially in the gdr but they they kept all of their promises that was surprising actually so i trusted sort of that was my only way out right i had signed and i trusted okay somehow this will will work out and it did work out so that was even then surprising when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So did you still have to do the same training that every NVA soldier did, or did this role mean that you could skip that? I think for me, it was quite different for for many reasons. So no, I did not have to do all of the training. The re- regular career path for, for what I was called in for, like during three years, uh, you were uh, you were considered a uh, like a non-commissioned officer, you know, for a limited time. And usually they, everybody had to go through six months of pretty harsh training where you had like all of the physical things and you also had to, you know, like your, whatever you're specializing in, like for me, it would have been electronics and uh, for others, it would have been, I don't know, like, you know, how to drive a tank or whatever else. Mm-hmm. And, um, but there were two things that helped me here. First of all, in this year in 88, they made a change in the uh, calendar when they were calling in the conscripts. They changed it uh, to September and uh, March. And so I think in 89 was the last time they called in people in, in March. And um, the, good, the good thing for me was it seems like nobody was prepared for that, right? They were all, the place I ended up in, they were all so scheduled for November and May um, getting these few people in uh, in September was apparently a big surprise, and they didn't plan a lot for us. So uh, I had to do uh, a six-week basic education. I was told later pretty relaxed. So uh, I think I, I, I did the obstacle course maybe once or twice, and uh, I never had to stand guard and, and you know all of the regular stuff. I just didn't have to do it because of schedule things. And then, of course, also... Of, uh, because of the role they had planned for me is, uh, to, to, to be in, the, in what I had to do there. But they d- you still had basic weapons training, I'm presuming. Yes, uh, we, we, we had that, but I, I, I tried to, to count uh, at one point. It must have been less than 20 or so shots I ever, try- I ever fired in my life. So ammunition was always short and um, they, nobody was eager to do more than necessary and for me it was after the basic training I think I did once or twice again uh, a repetition of that but th- that was it so it wasn't yeah. a big deal and what were your fellow comrades backgrounds in in the unit you know where, where had they come from so it was basically um, a, a signal battalion and uh, that signal battalion was associated to the the sort of high command for everything south of Berlin. So we were maintaining the phone lines and the, the phone system and telegraphs and all of that. 
that battalion was sort of split into half, um, half people working in the open and half people working in encryption services. And these uh, encryption services, that was really, that was, a, that was a crazy world. So they, you know, we were like uh, living in the barracks together so with sort of a separation, but uh, not too much. And then in the morning when you, you went into the place where you, you did your work, uh, they were basically going beyond another like iron door and nobody was even allowed to have a look into all of that. And th so there, there was lots of secrecy around that. Later on, I, I heard that uh, they had, you know, very strict regimes about all of that encryption stuff and key exchange and all of that. So that was uh, the first time I was ever in touch with that. But I was in the open part. So I actually did not get to see much of that on, only after the wall came down and most of that was opened. But um, there was a lot of secrecy. So whenever you had, like, you know, people sitting together and drinking beer or so, there was one point where the conversation stopped. <laughs> people were saying, yeah, we cannot talk about this, right? And uh, that was strange because normally if you're in a private setting, uh, there wasn't that much that, that couldn't be talked about. Uh, but um, this one was always a strange thing. So I don't know that much about the background of, uh, of these people. I think... They were checked much more thoroughly than people like me or my, my, my friends. That was a crazy sort of divide that, that we had. Yeah, I was going to ask you what sort of checks they did on you before you had this role. Did they do any form of background check on you that you were aware of? Did your Stasi file show any of that? The Stasi files did not show anything, and I did not have to hand in any special special things. So um, I, I would have expected they asked me, I don't know, to write down, you know, letter laying out my relatives in West Germany or whatever else. But maybe they knew about this already, right? And that was one thing. But um, the, on the only two things that were kind of strange and, and, and happening was a couple of weeks after I had signed up for the three years of service, my parents, who like most of, pe of the people in the GDR, had um, an application out for getting a telephone, which was not a normal thing, right? You you just couldn't just get a telephone in the GDR. Maybe I don't know, uh, one in twenty people or one in fifty or so had a had a phone at home, and but everybody had an, an application in because you know sometimes maybe you get a you get one, and then suddenly a couple of weeks after I had signed up, my parents were getting this phone, and we were like. What is that? And and I didn't make the connection back then. My parents they told me later they they made that connection. I never saw any anything that would confirm that this was this this was the reason. But that was the first thing I saw. You know, maybe there's a relation here. And I remember even when uh, I think it was the first time it was still GDR time when I came back from the army for for vacation. And I started to to tell a little bit about the details. My father was ac actually taking um, a sofa cushion and put it on top of the telephone. <laughs> he was not a <laughs> he was not a, a you know um, a person who was afraid of of that many things. But at this point, I was looking at him. What are you doing? And he was just saying, just to be sure. <laughs> An interesting connect connection there. It makes you wonder whether they perhaps wanted to have some way of listening in on your calls just to see what contacts there were going on with the West. I don't know. It's an interesting one. It's 
probably something we'll, we'll never know, right? Because like you said, the, the Stasi file, I, I looked this up and either it was destroyed, but uh, I'm, I'm sure I wasn't important enough to, that somebody was actively trying to destroy anything about me uh, in, in like um, in 89. And then the other thing that happened was also after the wall fell down, a fellow family who was living with us in the same, you know, we were, we were living in one of these uh, Neubau blocks or, you know, we had six stories, but there was somewhat uh, 11 or even 20 stories. And we were living in those with, with six stories and 12 families in, in that house. And um, for every house, there had to be kept uh, what, what they call the, the house book or some kind of registry. When you had visitors, they had to sign in. Sign in. I don't think we ever did that when, when we had visitors, but at least it was officially required. And uh, after the war came down, that family who was running this registration within our house, they came to my parents saying, you know, uh, just before, um, I think they said summer 88 or something like that. So it must have been shortly before I was calling. There were these strange people and asking things about uh, Stefan and, you know, things about you. And so apparently the Stasi did some checks I don't know. It's in, in relation to my to my service there. Again, I didn't find anything in in my files. Uh, actually, uh, now that we're talking, I think my parents were checking their files as well, and did they did not have anything either. So, either way, it's I don't know. You were potentially in quite a sensitive role here because you're working on the communications for a major command post of the of the East German Army. For me, I guess it, it wouldn't be surprising that they did do some further checks yeah, on you. It's possible. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. Did you ever get access to your East German army file after the fall of the war? Was that ever possible for you to see that or not? Maybe I was naive at this time, but I didn't even think that there was a file about me, right? I mean, obviously, there must have something like, you know, what's 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 his name and what's his, his well, home They've address. got that piece of paper you signed, Stefan. That, that's all it was. <laughs> yeah. But I, I, I didn't even try. Uh, so... Um, Actually, that's a good question. Maybe I should, I should, uh, I should try if uh, if there is something about me. Yeah, I don't know whether you can get access to it. Probably, I'd I'd just be fascinated yeah. to uh, see whether there's any other mention of you know any, anything else in in there. I don't know. So, with with your role, I mean, what is the day to day job like? What what are you doing day to day? So um, we were a group of uh, five people um, in, in, with similar background uh, than I had. Uh, everybody was doing their three years and had a plan to study uh, within, you know, the, the immediate group that I was working in. Our responsibility was basically uh, the uh, the phone system itself, at least partially. We, we had a, a civil employee that was doing most of the work. He was way more more qualified to do that than than we were. Like, but you know. Our, just our apprenticeship and and uh, being eighteen or nineteen, so he did most of the work, but but all of the like you know maintenance of going to to some of these offices of the generals or you know uh, the high officers uh, when the phone is broken or when some of their 
their stuff wasn't working well. We had to go there and exchange either the phone or repair it in place or whatever was, was necessary. And then there were, were also these like central systems where, you know, all the cables were coming in and being routed to whatever place within the barracks and all of that. So maintaining that was, um, a large part of our job. And, uh, this was like a 24 hour job. So you had to be, um, like, uh, not only in the barracks, but also, at your desk, so to say, for 24 hours. And then there were two days of being off. And then again, 24 hours. That was kind of a regular scheme. And uh, it wasn't always like that, but most most times were like that. And you could actually normally sleep during the night, so it wasn't that bad. But you had to be on on basically on, on the watch always, right? If there was something going on. And it could be some... Uh, some general at home uh, finding out that that uh, his phone wasn't working and we had to go out. That was very rare, but it happened because um, the, the phones in their private homes were also maintained and owned by by the NVA. And so we had to go there as well. But it happened very rarely. But it was possible that this was necessary and therefore we had to be uh, available at all times. One person had to be available at all times. And that was basically divided between the five of us. So there was somebody like me coming in, you know, needed to be onboarded and educated and all of that. And um, somebody were always on, on the way out because uh, they were close to their three years and making sure they leave all of the uh, all of the knowledge there. So that was kind of what was split between the five of us. I seem to remember reading somewhere that some of the East German phone system was still the same infrastructure from sort of like the Nazi era. I mean, was it an old infrastructure in East Germany? Actually, two friends of mine, I'm still friends with two of the five people. Both of them were doing their apprenticeship uh, apprenticeship with Deutsche Post, which was the kind of uh, service provider of uh, uh, a phone and 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 um, letter services and all of that, and they have a much better picture. and And what they told me, and what seems to be in line with what I, what I also read uh, at these times, is that most of the public infrastructure, like what uh, Deutsche Post had, was indeed very very old. Mostly mechanical stuff that um, you had some relays and and stuff that was really, uh, you know, like maybe not. World War Two, but you know, not 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 much, not much newer. But the funny thing was that the NVA had uh, pretty modern stuff for GDR standards. So, for instance, the um, the phone exchange that we were running, uh, it was you know, I mean, you, you would laugh nowadays, but it was uh, from the '60s, so it was only 20 years old <laughs> when I came there. So that was relatively <laughs> young. <laughs> And then we also had uh, some of the systems for basically um, multiplying or multiplexing uh, phone calls onto onto um, regular lines like PCM and other stuff. That was maybe from the mid '80s or so, maybe three years old or five years old. Again, all you know on the level of of what GDR did do. So for GDR standards, that was pretty pretty up to date. So that was not bad. So you you couldn't. You probably would have to be with Stasi or some some research lab or so if you wanted to work on on newer stuff within the GDR. But uh, that was that was all right. That was that was good fun. Were you made aware of the Allied military liaison missions in East Germany and to watch out for them snooping around? Not directly. Um, so it was not part of the education. So we didn't know anything about. 
you know that um I mean, of course, we everybody knew that the Russians could do what they wanted, right? <laughs> but uh, nobody told us that actually um, the French and the British and the U.S. could actually also get around and do something. But I was involved with with uh, uh, that kind of stuff uh, once, which I remember also very lively because it was a big event for me at, at this point. Um, there was a, a secret code word that uh, if you if you were on the these twenty four twenty four hours thing on the on this rotation, you always had to have a backup who didn't have to be with you like physically, but um, the backup had to be within the barracks and be available within like twenty minutes or whatever that was. And one of the roles of the backup was, of course, you know, if you fell ill uh, during your duties uh, to to back you up, like uh, it was said. Um, but the other role was, and actually I had to do this then uh, once, the other role was when the secret code word was coming in via phone. It was like like in a spy movie, right? Uh, you were getting called and can't remember what the code word was, but something like um, rocket inspection, which turned out to be, you know, funny, funny enough, close to what was actually happening. And then you would have to call your backup. And at this when this happened in, I think it was in in, in early 89, when this happened, I was actually the one that was the backup and I was called in. So I was uh, giving a driver uh, who would drive me together with a phone, some of these uh, funny GDR phones, into one of the hotels in downtown Leipzig. There was this, this driver, uh, actually, I think he even had a weapon with, with him. I can't remember exactly. And I was uh, sitting next to him in a trabant with that phone, with that orange phone on my knees. And uh, our mission was to go to that interhotel and install the army phone in one of the uh, bedrooms. What turned out then, I was told later on, all of that was about, is exactly for the allies, uh, and I think for some international in- inspection program, there was a a foreign, I can't remember, uh, some inspector was uh, arriving in Leipzig with the mission to do some of these rocket inspection thing, like, you know, how many SS-20 or whatever the, the Russians had in, in the GDR was inspecting that. And for him or her staying overnight, uh, there had to be one of these phone lines to be available. And of course, you know, all of the hotels in GDR time didn't have a direct connection to the NVA phone system. And the purpose of me was actually going there, installing that phone, testing it and making sure it works and then of course get out again and, and that was that was that was a funny thing so uh, you, first you get to leave the barracks which was not something you could do every day and then the second one was like you know it was awkward uh, walking into this um, this fancy hotel with you know beautiful people all around you and you would be there in your uh, in your army dress and uh, with, with this crazy phone under under my my arms and getting into these rooms and that, like I said it was like a spy movie right you I went to the to the desk uh, and saying like Raketeninspektion what oh sorry hold on for a moment then they were looking up apparently they were inspected too and they know they knew what to do that that was that was fun yeah it sounds like these could have been people who were checking on the INF the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty that had been Maybe. signed a few years before. And uh, it was part part of those um, inspection teams. So as sort of 88 moves into 89, are you sensing that East Germany is changing or there's any tensions out there? I think I was pretty late in realizing there was something going on. I think the earliest I really understood there was something going on was maybe in summer 89, 
you saw this, you know, in on in TV that uh, that people were uh, fleeing GDR through through Hungary and such, uh, but that was not seen as at least I didn't see this as a big turnaround. It was yeah, it was sort of an escalation and something that hasn't happened in that at least not with that many people before. But um, I think I first realized that there was something strange going on when, um, so I said before, we were not allowed to leave the barracks every day because we were only serving these three years and we were treated more like conscripts than, than you know, real officers or um, sergeants or whatever. And then suddenly there was this, this sort of order saying on Mondays, you cannot go out at all anymore. You had to apply. You had to get one of these uh, tiny tickets in order to leave the barracks. And there was this order saying, no, on Monday, it's not possible anymore. And okay, why that? I didn't understand it. And then somebody was telling me, yes, of course, it's because of demonstrations. And I said, what? And then I started looking a little bit closer and, you know, uh, talking to others, and and it turned out, uh, you know, there was 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 what then turned into these Monday demonstrations in Leipzig. That was the reason they ha- had become so big that they they feared any of us taking part. That would be would have been crazy. I, I would have never done that. Uh, I'm too too risk averse probably. Uh, but again, also like you know, not not having any any interactions by chance by somebody just walking by because it was deep in in the, in the city center and part of uh, leaving the barracks was always going for some food somewhere or having a beer or so and that was naturally quite in the city center and so it could have happened very easily that that I would walk into some of these groups and then somebody taking photos or whatever would not have looked good so you had very little way of knowing what was going on outside so being in the army there was no way you could watch west german tv or listen to western radio we found a way but that was very high risk right yeah um, so there was one tv for each i don't know maybe you know 50 people or maybe even 30 people and uh, they were all sealed um, you know with these plastic seals that um, you, you you weren't able to change the channels at all but then uh, somebody uh, can't remember exactly how uh, got hold of one of these stamps that, that that you got so we were actually able to change it and actually watch some um, some Western television, but it was always something like there was always a ceremony about this, right? Somebody had to be literally on the watch, trying uh, trying to watch out for somebody walking in who was not not clear of or not okay with watching Western television. So yeah. yes, we did that, but not on a regular basis, and certainly not during that time, uh, because um, you know you could see the tension arising also within the NVA, like uh, all of the all of the officers, uh, most of them were pretty close to the state. I think it was like it was basically not possible to be uh, to get the next rank without being in the party. And uh, I think that was pretty soon that uh, maybe you could get promoted once or twice, and then after that it was impossible to get promoted without being in the party. So um, most of them were like, you know, we kept on we kept on saying these are the red people, or they they have red ears or whatever the the slang was, and you could you could see the tension arising among them among them as well. I can't remember exactly whether we did not or did did do this, but it was certainly not something like you did every night, like at home, right? I mean, my parents and me we were watching almost exclusively uh, West German television because the the East German stuff was just unbearable. So, um, but we couldn't do that while in the in the barracks. I'm intrigued to know what you chose to watch in the barracks. 
there was just two two possibilities. Uh, there was GDR one and GDR two. But what about the Western when when you had somebody you know on watch to make sure you weren't interrupted? What Western TV did you uh, choose to watch then? I don't th- remember us watching as any of the you know like. Uh, RTL or uh, Sat1 or whatever private companies were arising then, so it must have been uh, the, the first and the second program like uh, RD and ZDF. Uh, pretty sure that it was one of the two of them. So were you watching like TV serials like Dallas? Um, I think the only the only the only thing I remember pretty lively is that we were watching the news, of course, uh, you know, for obvious reasons. Um, but um, I was never much into movies, so um, I'm not sure if I would have even stayed instead of, you know, I don't know, reading a book or doing some some of my hobby stuff or so. I was into photography at this time, and um, I was even allowed to uh, to bring a camera into, into the barracks, but, you know, all sealed. And then I have to, to give them into somebody else watching for it. And then when I left, I could take it and take it with me and all of that. It, it was okay for spending your time, but uh, I can't remember watching like movies or so. M- maybe, and surely others have done it, but it, it didn't. if I did it, it didn't impress me much. So did you take many photos during that period? Not in not in eighty nine. So I was again not you know <laughs> I I didn't have the guts to do that. Uh, so I I stayed away from from most of that. Um, and you know from I think from September maybe August even I think it was even August in eighty nine we were not allowed to go out on Monday anymore. And um, you know because I I had to hand in my my camera again when I when I entered the barracks again. I was mostly making sure that I'm not getting in, into any trouble. And since, you know, from my family and also from my other background, I was I was not one of these people in resistance. I had no intention to do any anything like that. Most of my photos from that time were more like personal stuff. And, you know, Leipzig uh, Zoo or Sue is, is, is uh, pretty well known. I, I did take a lot of photos there and uh, countryside and all of that. But nothing interesting from a, from a historic perspective, so to say. <laughs> We're in that period when the demonstrations are going on, and uh, I think you, you get called to do a, a certain job on the 7th of October 1989. Can you just take us through that? Sorry, folks, you're just going to have to wait another week for the next episode where Stefan describes the end of East Germany and his induction into the Bundeswehr, the West German Army. Don't miss the episode extras such as videos, photos and other content. Just look for the link in the podcast information. The podcast wouldn't exist without the generous support of our financial supporters and I'd like to thank one and all of them for keeping the podcast on the road if you'd like to help the project just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate the cold war conversation continues in our facebook discussion group just search for cold war conversations in facebook thanks very much for listening and see you next week
not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.